Hi, and welcome to Simply Happy Conversations. I'm Narelle King, and in this Simply Happy Conversation, I'm talking with Alison Davies, an amazing storyteller who uses music to support brain function and anxiety through her online courses. Ali shares how she navigated her autistic diagnosis and also talks about how behaviours are a byproduct of brain development and nervous system not coping. This conversation is a video recording that you can also watch on YouTube. Let's jump into this Simply Happy Guest Conversation. Welcome to Simply Happy Conversations. I'm Narelle King, wellness and organisational coach and yin and nidra yoga instructor. This podcast will help you create more time using organizational strategies so that you can start to simplify your life and prioritize your health. I'll be sharing conversations with other health and organizational experts and solo episodes with tips to help you simplify your life and prioritize your health. So today on Simply Happy Conversations, I have with me Alison Davies. She is a Tassie girl. She's an amazing storyteller, and she's also an autistic woman, and she is using music to help people with their brain function and also anxiety. So welcome, Ali. Oh, thanks, Narelle. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the time. So maybe we'll start with uh, things you like to do in your free time, because you have some amazing things that you do, because you live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I totally live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. So I live in regional Tasmania and I'm sort of in the bush but slash rainforest. It's right near the edge of the Tarkine rainforest. Um, and we have this beautiful little cabin. And so the funny thing is my what I like to do in my spare time changes a lot. I hyperfixate on one thing and then all of a sudden a, a few months later I'm sick of it and I want to the next thing. Um, so, but gardening is a stable and collecting herbs is a stable. I like to collect things. I've always liked to collect things. It keeps me calm and relaxed. So collecting shells, collecting rocks, collecting herbs, gardening this year, I've been going through a crochet phase (laughs) where I've just learned to crochet. And all I want to do is learn how to crochet and, and learn how to do new patterns and new stitches and, yeah, so that's that's what's on my mind at the moment. Oh, that's amazing. It's funny. My daughter <laughs> is tr- wanting to do macrame at the moment as well. So we were looking up um, things of how to do it and stuff, and she's become very fixated on now doing macrame at the moment. It's so good being able to hyperfixate in on something because you really, oh, it gives you an opportunity to really learn the skill Yes, or to really make something of it. Um, so I... I feel really blessed for being able to obsess over a certain hobby or topic or theme of interest. Um, But then I often seem to lose interest in it right before the pinnacle, like right before if I make, like I was making a quilt last year, last winter I was making a quilt and I was working on it all the time and just before I finished it I lost interest and that was it. Never finished, just sitting in the cupboard. <laughs> Ali, I work with people all the time around organisation and the same. I get, I'm like, so what about this? Yeah, no, I'm not interested now. And I actually take some of those things and take them to some sewing groups so that people can fix and finish them. So there's actually people who love to finish those projects off. And another client of mine has a whole pile of finished, she's the person who takes them home and she finishes off the project to then give them out to somebody, but she can't have them all unfinished. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So Amazing. it still finishes finishes up. So then do you let those things that you've hyper-focused go? Like do you declutter and start the new I, thing? I tend to let them go, yeah. yeah. I really like to celebrate my autistic culture. That's become really important to me. So recognising that I will fixate on something for a while and then lose interest in it is recognising that that is just how I work. Mm. Um, and that it's fine because I used to, you know, for most of my life I felt like it was a bad thing. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. you never finish anything. You start things and you never finish. You know, that was a bad negative story. And so I had to really change the stories I was telling myself and one of them was just being totally fine with starting something and not finishing it or getting all in and buying 20 books on it and doing a course and learning everything about it and then not using the skill. Yeah. Um. You know, so I've just sort of, I just let that, let those things flow into my life and flow out and I feel really accepting of it now. And um, that level of acceptance and that embracing of the autistic culture in my life and my family actually means that sometimes it'll float back in. Like Mm. I've got that quilt sitting there and I know that I'll finish it. It's not, I'm not. There's no negativity uh, around the idea of the quilt because I'm telling myself I'm bad because I never finished it. Mm. I'm not telling myself I'm bad because I didn't finish it. So I don't have any negativity around the whole idea of the quilt. So the quilt is still in a happy place for me because I never turned it into a, a, a trigger for shame or a reason to be ashamed, mm. if you know what I mean. No, no, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, so it makes it so it's it's been a really nice, uh, it's been a really nice uh, growth for me to really just go yeah my hobbies come and go and um I'm never going to finish anything properly <laughs> and that's okay that's okay and you may go back I love that there's that opportunity yeah. to go back to it especially if it's nearly finished and it's something you really were passionate about yeah that's great and then I suppose exactly. if it was still there in 10 years time then maybe you might be like actually this is not going to be finished and maybe it's time to pass on to somebody else that's in your community who'd probably really appreciate to finish it who's maybe that finisher who loves that who needs to actually have the projects yes. done <laughs> yeah so, this quilt is actually going to be beautiful I hand I hand dyed. I know we're probably ready to move on from this question. But oh no! Go I hand dyed in in seeds and bark and stuff from our garden, berries, um, and foods. So I collected all these scrap bits of material from old clothes and from the op shop. I eco dyed them <laughs> outside Amazing. in a garden over the fire, and then with walnut shells. And I've got all these beautiful different colours and then I've made this, the quilt is hand-stitched, like a canther quilt. It's all hand-stitched with all different colours that are all eco-dyed and it's a queen-sized quilt. Oh, my God. So it's, it's enormous. Yeah. And it be amazing. With I know. Oh, no, you definitely will get Actually, just that. this conversation. My- yes, yes, motivate yeah, you to go, yeah, oh, yeah, I really want, oh, my God, I really want to see it because that is something that I'm so passionate about that people, you know, using materials within their home and what can we do with those rather than going to landfill. Like you would be horrified with the amount of things that you see, that I see that go to landfill and you know, I love when I can move it on to another family or another person rather than even just putting it to the op shop, but knowing that it's going to get a second life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, maybe share about your business and how your business came about because you were a music therapist. 
originally. I was you still are therapist. really into heart, aren't you? I was a music therapist for 16 years and uh, back in 2016, uh, so I was working pri- in private practice in Tasmania uh, where I'd go to nursing homes, I'd go to hospitals and schools and I also had a clinic room where people would come to me, but mainly I was going out to places in the community um, and doing music therapy with people. But in 2016, that's the year I was assessed um, for autism and diagnosed with autism. And my daughter was being assessed also at that time. Uh, She had a lot of complex support needs that we weren't really meeting. So things were quite tricky and difficult at that time. I was overwhelmed. (laughs) I was... In having a bit of an autistic burnout, to be honest, and everything was was just a lot. And music therapy is really loud because it's there's a lot of instruments and there's a lot of noise making. And I found it harder and harder to keep appointments. Like I'd have, you know, people would have booked appointments throughout the day, and I'd find it really hard to have the capacity to work at the times where the appointments were scheduled and all that kind of stuff. So I ended up in 2016, closing my private practice and just started doing things online. Uh, and to start with, I just started writing writing a blog. I think I made a blog and a Facebook page. And I recognise that because I live in regional Tasmania where there's not even, you know, there's, not, there's no, not many people where I live, I thought, well, I'm going to have to have an online presence because, you know, there's no actual people here. <laughs> So I thought, I don't know what that will be about yet, but let's just make it make a blog and, and make a Facebook page and we'll go from there. And I just started writing about things that were in my head and it, it was very therapeutic for me to write about how I was feeling. And it just, I was writing about my struggles and I was writing about music therapy and I was writing about what I thought about the allied health industry and where I thought there were problems and all of the things that were circling around in my head, uh, I just started writing about. And that's how my online business started over time well it wasn't long after that that I shared about my autism diagnosis um and then people really started reading because as you know at the moment at this point in time this point in history a lot of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s are being diagnosed with many neurodivergences Mm. Um, and a lot of it come starts with their children being diagnosed um, and so families are realising their neurodivergent, I guess they're, they're realising their neurotypes. Mm. And so a lot of people are seeking stories from other people who, are, who have recently realised their neurotypes and are, are adjusting to this new sense of identity. And so I just started writing about that more and more and more. And I found that um, I needed a break from talking about music and music therapy. And I really spent a few years there just talking about myself. And I was amazed at how many people needed to hear those stories and needed um, just lived experience as a foundational point for their own support. And then I started, then I realised, well, I've got a lot of people here listening and reading. So I started creating resources. And that's when I went back, tapped back into my music therapy. And I created um, a couple of courses where I could help people uh, use music as a tool for uh, self-regulation and to support their children's anxieties in the classroom and at home. So the online business, my business, Music in the Brain, it just, um, it was never a planned. It just came about from me needing to stop and meeting me not being able to work anymore and then me just doing the next right thing and just that's how it came. But you also have such a knowledge about the brain which connects that and that that for me, I just... 
loved how you connected, you know, your knowledge of the brain as well as what our kids need. And definitely that has been amazing. But thank you too for sharing all that start of this, your journey as well. And I think that yeah. that's really important, that whole, and the same, so for my diagnosis was through my children's and it seems to be every, you know, second person that I've talked to since COVID in particular, that also seems to be when people have realised, okay, things are not what they should be because we've got this time at home and that was for, for one of my children as well. But definitely the lived experience, so hearing people's stories. So the yellow ladybug for me was where I think it was three years ago when I heard the conference listen to people's stories and I was like, that's me. That was me when I was a kid. Oh, that was me too. So I really understand, like really relate to how people are out there have gone, oh, I love Ellie's story and, yes, I can relate to that because there's someone mm-hmm. sharing from that lived experience. Yeah, it's really important. I was, I straight away was looking for those people for myself. I was looking for people with lived experience. I was looking for autistic people. I felt really much like I felt very much like I need to find a community now. I need to mm. find my autistic community. And it doesn't mean that I need to be best friends with people just because they're autistic and I'm autistic, Mm. Um, but I needed to find a way to connect with people who just got it. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like, I don't think we've never talked about this before, but I knew that you were autistic, (laughs) but it's because... It's because, like, I don't know if you feel this, but do you think I have a radar? I feel yep. like autistic people have a radar for autistic people. It's one of those if you know, you know kind of things. Yeah. I can sense it in other people. And so I knew that you were autistic, but I didn't know till just then. We've never actually spoken about this. How funny is that? <laughs> well, it's funny because I sense it with children. So when I'm teaching in the classroom, I can. I can sense it in the classroom, but not adults, no. But definitely now a little bit more. But so funny, well, you know, throughout my childhood, no one ever said anything to me. And even now when I've told friends, they're like, really? Are you sure? And I'm like, yes, I'm sure. Whereas when I've been working over the past three years, like change the direction and actually face-to-face coaching and organisation, that is when some of my clients have been, "Um, and are you autistic? And I'm like, oh, yeah, how do you, I'm thinking, I'm I'm, I'm like observing at the moment and doing some, you know, testing and stuff for myself. Um, And they're like, oh, you definitely are. So it's interesting that you say that because that's what I found over the past three years with clients as well, that they've just been really tuned in. And then they'll point out the things to me and I'm all right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think think the people who aren't autistic are the ones who are like, really, you're autistic? What? But the people who are autistic, they're like, yeah, we know. We get it. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It's really hard. Like when that, when I was diagnosed, it was so hard to tell people. It felt like a coming out Mm. and I didn't know how to tell people in a way that they would understand. And, you know, I got better at it over time. And, you know, you don't have to tell anyone, but one of the reasons I I self-identified first and then one of the reasons I went for a formal diagnosis was because I thought maybe my family wouldn't believe me Mm. unless it was formalised through a doctor or a psychologist. And then when it was formalised, I found it hard... I found it hard to explain it in a way that other people understood. And it opens up a can of worms because because we know it's genetic. Like then other yes. members in your family who aren't diagnosed or assessed, it's layered. Yes. It yes. impacts them as well. 
Um, and it can be so confusing. The dynamics really change, don't they? Oh, definitely, definitely. But for me, I wanted the diagnosis too for the same reason as you, That, but also for my kids. So, you know, my kids having diagnosis, it's like to them, you know, they just Google about it and they're like, mum, it's hereditary, so where does it come from? Does it come from you or dad? And that's for me, I was like, well, I'm going through the diagnosis and then my kids were like, well, it's definitely you. And maybe the ADHD is from dad. So, you know, it, to me, it was like help to help them to, you know, identify with it as well. And it has, it's really made a massive difference for my kids to just have someone to share how they're feeling and know that I'm going to understand what they're, what they're talking about. And for me to be able to share things that have happened in my childhood and, you know, growing up and especially at that yeah. age, teenager going, yeah, I remember that. And hopefully this yeah. will help you. And I wish I knew that when I was your age and, you know, you had some therapy back then, but we've learnt in different ways, haven't we, to cope? Absolutely. I yeah. feel absolutely the same. Yeah. yeah. So then coming back to then your music therapy and anxiety, what are some ways that you would help suggest people to help family members um, who are struggling with some um, brain function and also regulation and even anxiety as well? So it doesn't have to be neurotypical because it's anxiety is also out there. And I know that the things that you've shared in Brains Equals Behaviour have definitely helped us, but also helped other people in the community that I've shared the strategies with. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, underlying all of it, yes, strategies are great and I can share some, but the most important thing is just fundamental principles, like understanding basic truths that no one's ever told us before. Like uh, behaviours are not, children do not choose to behave in a way that's difficult and no child ever chooses to have a meltdown. No child chooses to have a tantrum. No child chooses to not be able to go to school or not cope in a social situation or not want to listen or not all of those things. It's it's never a choice. Behaviours are always a byproduct of, of brain development or what's going on in the nervous system. <laughs> And that's important to know because mm. all of our parents and their parents and their parents and our teachers and their teachers and their teachers throughout, you know, previously, they were all behaviorists because that's what was taught. We didn't know anything about the brain. So we didn't even start really learning much about the brain till probably the 70s. Um, and so, you know, by then our parents were already raised and at, had been through school or going through school or being raised at that time. And so, you know, if you think of our parents' generation and previous they didn't have the information we do now about understanding the brain and regulation and the nervous system. And so they thought behaviours were a conduct thing and you rewarded them or disciplined them or punished them and that's how behaviours changed. So it's really, really, really important now that we have the neuroscience that tells us that if we focus on the behaviours, we're not going to support children the way they need to be supported. Like if we if we can remind ourselves of that every time our children are being difficult yeah. um, and remember that they're not choosing this behaviour, their nervous system, their brain is either telling them that they're unsafe or that they don't know what to do right now. So, you know, that's a principle. That's a principle that it's really important to understand. I think another principle is that, oh, sorry, I had one and it's just fallen in the black hole. <laughs> do you know, I, I love what you were just saying though. 
It's like it's the um, there's a saying that we use that I use constantly to remind myself, my husband. He's not. They're not having a. They're not giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time, isn't it? Yeah. And constantly trying to reinforce that that yeah. they're not planning to have this meltdown, are they? It's just happening. Exactly. Something out there that's really affecting them, whether it's sound an itchy tag or it's yeah. something that they've been over they're just overthinking about something in their yeah. lives at the moment isn't it yeah and with that it's really important for us to be gentle on ourselves because mm. we were raised with yeah. discipline and with rules and it was about behaviors so we will we will constantly slip back into that because unless we're like some kind of genius who's unpacked our entire past and healed every inner wound that we developed as a child which none of us have I don't think (laughs) we will at times growl and snap and be impatient and and blame them for a behavior and and all of those things that the way our parents spoke to us those things will at least come to our head even if we don't say them out loud but I'd say for most of us we're going to have those moments especially if we've had a tough day and then we're coming home yeah yeah so it's really important to just be gentle with ourselves and know that it's okay. Like I, I try and tell people there's never a right or wrong when it comes to parenting, apart from the obvious wrongs, you know, there's obvious mm. wrongs. But for most of us, we're trying so hard to be the perfect parent that we really we really carry a lot of shame when we just yell or we mm. do in a moment, we just don't react or respond the way we would ideally. It doesn't mean we're a bad parent. And look at us. We all grew up being disciplined and punished and rewarded and all the things we would never do. Now, we grew up having those things as our life. That was our framework. And, you know, a lot of us are kind of messed up, but we're not that bad. So (laughs) our children are going to be okay. And I never, I never in any of my courses say, this is what you have to do. Mm. Um, I never, you know, I give strategies and I give ideas, but I never say do, do this and don't do this because I just feel that parents and carers will instinctively always make the best right choice in that moment and then in the next moment they can make the next right choice and in the next moment they make the next right choice. Um, And you might think back to something that you did yesterday and go, oh, I wouldn't have done that. But in the moment, that's what happened. And so it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so being gentle on yourself as a parent, I think is also a really important principle that we should just remember. We need to, yeah, we need to, to be gentle on ourselves. And the other thing is, this is really important to remember. All humans experience anxiety. We get really upset about childhood anxiety because we think why kids shouldn't be anxious. There's so much. We focus on this narrative like, oh, there's this epidemic of childhood anxiety right now. Kids shouldn't be having to deal with this. This like, And it is hard. We, no one likes watching anxious kids. We, we feel for them yeah. because we know what it feels like. But to be human is to experience all the emotions and to be human is to have a nervous system and a brain that's going to be in survival mode. Um, and survival mode is anxiety. So survival mode is what's happening in the brain and anxiety is the physiological experience that accompanies that. So it's what we experience in our body. So just by being human, all children will experience anxiety and are experiencing anxiety on and off all the time. Um, so it's n- it's nothing, you know, when we recognise that our children are anxious, it's not because we're doing anything wrong. We don't have to go out and do courses and, and train and everything to learn what to do to fix this because, honestly, anxiety, once we start, I think once we stop thinking about anxiety as something that needs to be fixed um, and start thinking about anxiety as something that needs to be held or nurtured or soothed, 
uh, then we're going to be more likely to actually be able to support ourselves and kids in ways that makes the anxiety more manageable and, and not as frightening. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you've put that beautifully, Ali. Like that's definitely because that's what you're hearing all the time, aren't we, about anxiety at the moment and being such a big problem in our community. Yeah, that's probably making us all more stressed as well, isn't it? I know. It's called anxiety, anxiety. Well, that's what I call it. <laughs> is that it. what it is? Anxiety, like, anxiety. <laughs> Because, you know, when you get anxious about being anxious? Yes, yes. Or your child, you get anxious about your child being anxious because, and they're anxious because they're anxious. It's like not being able to sleep because you can't sleep. Yep. You're like, oh, no, I can't sleep. I'm not sleeping well at the moment. And then you lie in bed feeling bad because you can't sleep. Yeah. It's just we lay out when we fixate on these emotions or think of them as a bad thing, we impact them and we double them. Yeah. And if we just recognise that anxiety is just a human experience for children and adults alike. Yeah. And if we developed a, and I guess this is a really important strategy. I know you asked me about strategies and I haven't spoken about any of them yet. Oh, no, but you have. They've all been beautiful. The two of those, yeah. that I think, are perfect strategies, definitely. Yeah. One of the really important ones is, and this is something we were not taught, I don't think anyone or any of us um, as adults were taught this, is to have a positive or just, just a neutral even, just a, a a relationship with emotions that we don't like. None of us know how to have a relationship with anger. We have terrible relationships with anger. We don't know how to use it. We don't know how to express it or channel it or, you know, communicate with it. We're triggered by other people's anger. We think it's negative and not just anger, but anything that we've um, traditionally thought of as a negative emotion or a negative feeling or a negative experience. We have never learned how to be in relationship with that feeling. And so I think it's important for us to honour our own emotions, even the anger and the fear and the jealousy. You know, I get jealous. Like I can admit I get jealous when I see other families just doing normal stuff. Yeah. Going on a holiday or you see other kids just playing together. Yeah. I get jealous. I get I really do. And I know you're not meant to say that. You're not meant to admit it, but you know, I do. Not all the time. But that's okay. Because yeah. that's an emotion and I'm a human having an experience, having an emotional experience, and I don't have to fixate on it or feel shame about it. I just let it come and go. Uh, and if our children can see us experiencing all of the emotions and not feeling bad about them, they will learn from the beginning how to emotionally regulate because emotional regulation is one of the things that people talk a lot about and you hear a lot about this problem of how so many kids are dysregulated. But I don't know, I don't really believe the story because I think the ones who are crying and angry and stomping and shouting, I think they're the ones who are regulating their emotions. Mm, yeah. So I tend to look at this, the narrative and the story that we're being told and go, is this really, does this feel right? And this idea that so many kids are emotionally dysregulated doesn't feel right to me. I feel feel like those kids have big feelings and they're getting them out and that is how they are actually managing their anxiety. Mm, definitely. Um, I think because you talk about that really well in Brains Equals Behaviour about the emotion going through their body and going through like the the meltdown. I really love how you talk about the meltdown and how you have to go through it to come mm. out the other end and express it through your body, isn't it? Yeah, you really, you do. Like, And I think the goal is never to never have another meltdown. If we focus mm. on never having another meltdown or stopping meltdowns, then we just perpetuate this thought that meltdowns are bad and we don't want them. And then when we have them, we feel shame and our kids pick up on that or they feel shame and everyone feels, I mean, 
they don't feel nice. I've had lots of meltdowns and, you know, they're not nice. They don't feel good. We don't want them. We don't actually want Mm. them. We don't choose them. But since we're humans who have a nervous system, we will experience them no matter what your neurotype is, whether you're neurodivergent Mm. or not. Um, Most people will. And um, for some of us, um, we will experience them all through life because of our neurotype. And um, I think if we stop focusing on fixing them or stopping them or not having them, and start and start thinking about how can we support ourselves so that we don't feel ashamed or bad mm. when they pop up. Uh, things start to change. For me, I went through for years. I was like, bad. whenever I'd have a meltdown afterwards, I'd be like, I'm bad, bad mum, terrible. Like, what would people think about you if they knew this? How embarrassing, terrible, mm. all these horrible things. And then I I realized that was never going to help me. Uh, and I realized that I never say those things to my children when they have meltdowns. I tell them that they're loved and that they're safe. And so I started saying those things to me after a meltdown. I'd start saying, congratulations, Ali, you're so strong. <laughs> I love you. You're so loved and looked after. And and uh, things changed. Like it sounds like a small thing, but that completely changed the way I framed my meltdowns, which completely changed the way I approached supporting them. Yeah. And it no longer became about trying to never have a meltdown again, but it became about having a healthy relationship with meltdowns. And that in itself was enough to mean that I have far less meltdowns ever because I have this healthier relationship within my body. And how do you feel after a meltdown now? Do you also feel different? Like does your whole body react differently and sort of the recovery? I suppose it's not holding the shame in your body, is it, as much as what it was? So, yeah. I do recover from them a lot quicker now. I still have the physical exhaustion Mm. and I I do have moments of feeling bad or feeling guilt. I, I do have moments of feeling that, but I don't fixate on it. Yeah. Um, and then I actively tell myself how good I am and really say beautiful things to myself. And and it, the recovery is much easier. And then also I it puts me in a much better spot to wake up the next day and start again and, like, know that I deserve to make myself a good healthy breakfast and I deserve to have another rest and I deserve to have a good long hot shower and all of a sudden I'm I'm caring for myself in a way that soothes my body and my nervous system and my brain, which makes it less likely or gives me more capacity to cope before I have another meltdown. So it, it really changes everything. Definitely, definitely. That yeah, I just think that having that positive conversation about it and how important it is for our body. Otherwise, we're just letting those negative emotions build up in our body. And just from yoga teaching, like that's even then coming up as other issues other like autoimmune diseases or other you know even pain I've even had pain in my hip from talking to myself badly about things that I've done so it manifests in your body if we continue these negative conversations with ourselves so yeah that's such a beautiful tip and I just think that even supporting our children in that way as well when they are having a meltdown has been you know pivotal in our own family and helping my my children cope when they happen that you know I'm just we're just here you know we're here and we're here to talk about it later when you you want if you want to talk about it later has um really helped and really supportive oh thank you so much Ali I know you think they're not tips but strategies I probably should have used word strategies instead of well yeah I really think that um reframing just basic principles Mm. and understandings is far more life-changing than the strategies Mm. because you can do strategies to support emotions or strategies to like support 
you know, anything. And there's a million places we can get strategies and a lot of them are great. However, if we don't change our fundamental thinking, none of it matters. And so fundamentally, we need to understand that all of our children will experience anxiety and us because we're human. And fundamentally, we need to understand that that meltdowns aren't a bad thing. And fundamentally, we need to have just relationships with all emotions, not just the ones we like. Mm. And we really fundamentally need to understand that behaviours are never a choice. Behaviours are a byproduct of a brain telling the body or the child what to do. So when we can reframe those basic understandings, so much changes in and of itself uh, that we can then we can really look at, okay, well, where do we need extra support and what kind of strategies do we need to support these things? Whereas if we still focus on behaviours being the problem, we have 20 million strategies we need to put in place because we're focusing on the wrong thing and we're never, ever going to be able to fix or change behaviours. No, no, not at all, is it? And that's not not the point either, is it? Like what's the point in change? We don't want to change the behaviour because we want everyone to be showing their true potential. And, yeah, I mean, that's we're past that, aren't we now, that whole masking to fit in and and Mm. what was expected, which was obviously when we were children, whereas now we want people to embrace their uniqueness and be who they really are, isn't it? I agree. And if I think if I have one more thing to say about all of that, it's that because we are the first generation of parents who have access to this neuroscience and understand the importance of reframing these big topics, it can be really difficult with our own parents and our in-laws and our extended family and teachers and other people who might be a generation before us or older than us or don't have access to this more modern neuroscience um, because it means we're doing things very differently to what they did. And that can be triggering for everyone involved. And so what we are doing is paving the way for deep acceptance and inclusion for our children and also navigating family dynamics um, and trying to explain and educate other people around us as to why we are parenting this way. So what we're doing is a lot. Mm, It is hard work and it deserves a good cry sometimes and it deserves... It's, it's difficult. Like it's not what we're doing is actually making a cultural change right now. Um, and it, it is very incredible work that we're doing just by parenting our children in the best way we can. It's changing history um, because neurodivergent children and anxious children who are experiencing lots of anxiety are really starting to be supported in a way that accepts and includes them as human beings rather than tries to change them or fix them. Definitely. And that was definitely a theme I think that I took away from the Yellow Ladybug conference as well was around yeah, acceptance rather than um, changing, which is great. So, Ali, how can people find you? Now, one thing I did want to share is you also did, skipped about your YouTube channel. I think you even had that as well as your blog, didn't you? You had some really cool little videos <laughs> from so a very long time ago. Yeah, you can find. So, yes, I have a YouTube <laughs> channel, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and website. So um, if you search for Alison Davies, Music and the Brain, you will find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. And if you look up alisondavies.com.au, that's how you'll find my website. And amongst any of those sort of avenues is where you will find links that take you to my, um, I have the 12-week course Brains Equal Behaviours. 
I'm only doing that once a year right now. Oh, so okay. that will run again in February 2023. But I have just finished putting together a brand new program that's going to launch in September. And I'm very excited about it. It's called The Magic and Medicine of Music. And it's Ooh, a six-week course. Yeah. So um, tell us a bit more. <laughs> it's going to be all about how we can recognize that we are musical beings and it's going to help us reconnect with our voice and our sense of musicality so that we can use music with our children whether it's at home or in a classroom um in ways that are strategic and therapeutic so we're learning how to use music um as a tool for regulation and also learning how to deepen our own sense of being musical and shedding these stories of shame about not being able to sing being out of tune not being good enough not being musical because that whole idea of that some people are musical and some aren't it's a it's a myth it's a total myth to be human is to be musical because our brain is basically a musical organ so yeah um so that is what this new program is going to be all about and um that's have some beautiful bowls some of your beautiful bowls and your chanting that i absolutely love and i think you've done a great job of that on your social media at the moment sharing some of those because it just makes me go oh i'd love to be in a sound sort of bath and have your voice in there as well oh thank you yeah i really i do those for me as well because i need just that the act of doing it myself make helps me soothes yes. my um and then I try and share them with other people so that other people can see that you can soothe yourself using music music equals safety you can use music as a tool like a lullaby to soothe your brain and your nervous system especially when you're feeling traumatized or anxious or in survival mode and everybody can and so I'm trying to really model that you don't have to be like some kind of musical skilled educated you know have had music lessons mm. in person to be able to use music really really um significantly it just takes me back to prep teachers they do such a great job of always using rhythm rhymes like the whole day is literally around that and then it's almost like they get to grade one and it's like okay we'll throw all that out the window and we'll move on from music but it's like this just needs to be throughout their whole lives it really isn't it and I always I always do say like we should treat our brain like it's a newborn and if we treated our brain like it was a newborn baby we would sing lullabies to ourselves we would rock ourselves we would gently sway we would sing simple melodies and hum and whistle and slow our speech down and we would do all the things that our nervous system loves because it makes it feel safe Mm, if we thought of our brain as a newborn baby instead of a machine that's meant to churn out efficient work get things done uh, we would start caring for our brain in a completely different way oh that is beautiful ali that's the best way to finish on is to treat our brains like newborn babies Mm. thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom you're amazing to speak to ali and um, we're so lucky to have you share this knowledge and all of your skills with the world oh it's been such a pleasure really nice to see your face again thank you for having me that's all right thank you thank you so much for joining me for today's simply happy conversation if you enjoyed this episode then i'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review this helps others find it who are also looking for tips and organizational strategies to simplify their life and prioritize their health if you enjoyed this episode Don't forget to subscribe so that you won't miss future episodes. You can also connect with me over at simplyhappy.com.au.